Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the world of game theory, examining the basic terms, definitions, and reasons why we study it. This podcast will focus on a specific type of game and its application within the sporting world and provide numerous strategies for how to come out of those situations victorious. So if you ever wondered why it's so hard for a new professional sport league to take root in America, or what game theory has to say about LeVon Bell and professional athletes holding out, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Before we get into specific application examples of game theory in the sporting world, I want to take a second to set the table to make sure that everyone is on the same page and knows exactly what it is we're talking about. Now, I don't want to go too in-depth on this introduction part because I've already done a podcast on game theory on the Sport Professor podcast stream called Game Theory in the NBA. And in that podcast, we do a good introduction explaining really what game theory is. So if you're interested in that and then how game theory applies specifically to the explosion of points in the modern day NBA, I would suggest that you go and listen to that podcast. But for those of you who haven't listened to that podcast yet, let's begin by just talking about what game theory is. A lot of books have actually been written on game theory, and it's become the topic of conversation in a lot of academia. Game theory has been applied not only to the field of economics and mathematics, which is where its base is, but also the fields of law, political science, military strategy, philosophy, evolutionary biology, college admissions, insurance, even now into the world of sports. So what is game theory? Well, James Miller, in a book called Game Theory at Work, How to Use Game Theory to Outthink and Outmaneuver Your Competitions, said in talking about game theory that, quote, your life consists of games and situations where you compete for a high score. And game theory tells us how we should approach those situations and deal with our competition in order to guarantee or in order to try to maximize the potential for us to win the game. He goes on to say that, quote, game theory studies how smart, ruthless people should act and interact in strategic settings. Now, that's a great starting point, but what is a strategic setting? A strategic setting is any situation in which you are competing against another person or against multiple other people to try to gain some desired outcome. And within that setting, you're ascribed or required to follow certain sets of rules or certain set of general conventions, which conventions are those unwritten rules, those things that we agree to follow even though they're not written down. And so, Tal Walker, in a book called The Joy of Game Theory, an introduction to strategic thinking, defined game theory by saying, quote, Game theory is a branch of economics that considers how players of a mathematically formulized game can optimize their decisions. In these games, what each person does has an effect on other people in the group. Game theory then studies how to make the best choices in situations of interdependent decision making. That gets to one of our main points is why do we learn game theory in, in the first place? Why is it so important and how can we use this to actually benefit ourselves? Well, the reason we learn it is back to what Miller said. Your life consists of games. Your life consists of situations where you are competing against other individuals for some type of outcome that you desire. It might be you applying for a job and competing with hundreds of other people for that single position. It might be you working at that job for that business, competing with all other businesses out there to try to maximize the profitability of your organization or to try to capture 
the most clients that you can. And so if we study game theory, if we understand the components of what makes a game, then we will be able to recognize the situation first off. And then we will be able to take tactical steps to put ourselves in the best position to maximize the potential outcome that we can achieve. So it's important for us to understand this because if we understand what game we're playing, how that looks and strategies we can take to maximize the payoff for us and other individuals that we are playing with don't understand those facts, we can actually get the upper hand. The best way to learn this and apply this is to start with playing games. And there's a great game in the book, The Art of Strategy, by individuals named Dixit and Nailbuff. And it's a very simple illustration of game theory. We're actually going to play it right now. And it's a simple game. It's called the Pick a Number Game. And here are the rules. You and I are going to be playing against each other. I am going to pick a number. And that number is going to be between 1 and 100. And after I pick the number, you're going to have five guesses to try to discern what that number is. After each guess, I will give you a very basic answer of whether my number is higher than your number that you guessed or lower than it. You can then take that information and make your next guess. And I'm going to write the number down right now. So that way it's cemented. You're going to have to trust me that it's cemented right now and I can't change it. And if I win the game, if after five guesses you haven't picked the number, you owe the Sport Professor Podcast $100. But after five guesses, if you do guess the number, then I will write you a check for $100. So the rules are set. The outcome is there. Now let's play the game. So if I was with you right now, I'm guessing that your first guess would be the number 50. And I say that because you have five guesses. Your goal is not to guess my number on the very first try. In fact, your goal on your first guess should be, strategically speaking, to try to eliminate the greatest number of options possible. Well, you could maybe guess number one or number two, and you could eliminate 98 or 99 other numbers, but the likelihood is that you would actually only eliminate a very few. So how do we eliminate half? We cut the options by guessing 50. So you guess the number 50 for your first number, and I would then tell you that my number is lower than 50. So applying that same strategy, I'm guessing that your second guess would probably be the number 25. Because again, that is the logical progression. You're now trying to take number 50 and eliminate it down to the smallest number possible. In that case, I would say that the number is higher. And if I say the number is higher, then again, you would probably go through and now try to eliminate the greatest number of options. So you know the number is between 50 and 25. Well, what's halfway between 50 and 25? Well, halfway between the two is going to be 37.5. So let's say you round that up and let's say that you guess the number 38. So again, our strategy has been fairly simple. We're now on your fourth guess and you guess the number 38. And what I tell you now is that my number is higher. So we've eliminated a lot of numbers. You're on your fifth guess. You know that the number that I am thinking of is between 50 and the number 38. And it can't be 50 and it can't be 38. You know the possible choices for my number are 39 to 50. So you have 11 potential choices. So now we've eliminated the greatest number of choices possible. Now you only have one guess left. And if you don't get it right on this guess, you have to give me and the Sport Professor podcast $100. So what's your guess going to be? Well, let's take a second before you make that guess to talk through what you should guess. Because now there's an equal likelihood in theory of those 11 numbers that I could have selected any one of them. But what you should think is I understand game theory. I'm the one presenting this podcast. I've already done one podcast. I teach the subject. If I know that the most logical strategy an opponent in this game would take would be to first pick the number 50 to cut it in half, then pick the number 25 to cut that in half, then pick the number 38 to cut that in half. If you know that I know that that strategy that might be able to tell you something about the number that I picked because you know right away that I would never pick the number 50, that I would never pick the number 25, that I would never pick the number 37 or 38. 
So of all those options remaining, what becomes the most logical number that I would pick? Most students and most people, when we do this example, and when Dixit and Nailbuff talk about this example in their book, think, I got it. They would pick the number 49 because it's not logical for you to guess number 49 at first. It's most logical that you were to guess 50, so you go one under. So most of you would probably think that your next guess would be 49. But in fact, the number that I wrote down on this sheet of paper is the number 48 because I know that you know that I know game theory and we get into something called circular logic where I can move one step ahead of you and you can keep following me but as long as I stay one step ahead of you I'm going to be able to win the game and so that's a very simple example we're playing against each other I have now won the game by picking the number 48 and you haven't been able to guess it but Using this game as an example, you can see how understanding what the logical path to take can actually lead you the closest to the answer. If you don't understand the logic and the strategic thinking that goes into this pick a number game, then you just might randomly select the number 60 and then you actually hurt your ability to win. And so understanding that strategic thinking, understanding how that works can actually help propel you to victory. Examining this game more in depth lets us actually start to define some of the terms that are key within game theory. And let's start with just defining what a game actually is. Because oftentimes people talk about this is a game or that's a game, but it might not fit the rules of game theory. So for in order for something to qualify as a game within game theory, we need three things. The first thing that we need is a set of people that we call players. It doesn't matter how many there are. We just have to have more than one person. If I'm just playing a game by myself, that's not game theory. There's no opponents. I have to have opponents in order for something to be considered a game as it relates to the strategies that we'll be talking about later. Second, after having a set of people, I have to have a set of allowable moves that we call strategies. Now, I defined these earlier by saying we have to have rules or we have to have conventions that we follow. But all this is is saying that you have options. So in our game that we just played and pick a number, you had a set of allowable moves. You could guess any number. That was the move that you were allowed. I also had a set of allowable moves. I could pick any number and then... I could respond with either higher or lower. So those are our moves that we have, and those moves start to dictate what the strategies could be. So we have first, a set of players. Second, a set of allowable moves, rules, or conventions that are in place. And then third, we have to have a description of how each player feels about a potential possible outcome. And the description has to be able to be shown mathematically. In the pick a number game, we had an outcome. We had $100 that was being wagered. We have a way mathematically to talk about that outcome. We can describe it in terms of your percent chance of actually winning the game. At the beginning, you have a 1 in 100 chance of winning the game. Now, after you make your first guess, if you picked 50, you reduced that 1 in 100 to now 1 in 50. And every step you made by cutting it in half, you increased the likelihood that you would gain the outcome that you wanted. And we can talk about that in those mathematical terms. So we have to have that set of players. We have to have a set of allowable moves or rules that we call strategies. And then we have to have a way to mathematically talk about the obtainment of the outcome that we desire. Those are the only opponents we have to have in order for there to be a game. Now, when we're talking about games, we have different types of game. The first is we have what we call zero-sum games and non-zero-sum games. In a zero-sum game, we can only have one winner. So we have one winner and everyone else loses. The pick a number game that we just played is a zero-sum game. We only could have one winner. Either I won or you won. A basketball game is a great example of a zero-sum game. There's a winner and the loser. That's it. But we also have what's called a non-zero-sum game. This is when one person's gain does not necessarily result in another person not getting anything. So in a non-zero-sum game, we might have a winner, 
but that doesn't mean the other person loses. They could still obtain an outcome that they want or an outcome that is positive for them. It just might not be the biggest payoff or the best payoff that they want. Oftentimes, business can be described as a non-zero-sum game. Think about leagues like the NFL and the NBA competing for fan bases. The goal of them competing is to obtain the most fans possible. But just because I, as the NBA, get 6,000 fans and you get 4,000 fans, that doesn't mean that I won. It just means that I gained more fans. It's a non-zero-sum game. In a zero-sum game, I would either get all 10,000 or none. But when we're competing for clients, when we're competing for consumers, we don't oftentimes get all of them or none of them. We split with our competition. And so that would be an example of a non-zero-sum game. And finally, we have what's called a finite game versus an infinite game. A finite game is a game in which there are a fixed number of moves that can be made. The pick a number game was a finite game. I said you can make five guesses. Sport is a finite game. A basketball game in the NBA lasts 48 minutes. After 48 minutes, unless there's a tie, the game ends. A soccer game lasts 90 minutes. Again, unless there's a tie, after 90 minutes, that game ends. Even if there is a tie, it's still a finite game. We just add 30 minutes on. In the NBA, we just add five minutes on. But there is a fixed amount of time, and once that time is over, the game is complete. An infinite game, on the other hand, is a game that doesn't have a time frame. There are not a specific number of moves that you can make. You can make an infinite amount of moves. The game does not end until one of the players or one of the participants runs out of resources. Infinite game are what businesses are playing. Think about your professional sport leagues. Think about the NFL or the NBA or the MLS. They're not focused on what happens just within a year time frame. And if they are focused on only what happens within that year, they're going to make moves that are going to hurt them long term. Instead, what they're focused on is trying to be around and trying to be successful for as long as possible. Your most successful businesses realize that they're playing an infinite game, that they're not worried just about this year, but rather they're worried about lasting and continuing to grow and be successful forever. This is why certain companies like Amazon and like Netflix can be so successful because they realize that even if they lose a little bit of money up front or lose a little bit of money in the short term, as long as they're continuing to think long term and plan for long term and make moves that ensure their long term viability, they will be able to stay around. And the professional sports leagues that are most successful do the same thing. If we look at the NFL and the NBA, the two most successful sports leagues in North America, they have an eye for the future. Yes, they make changes for the present, but a lot of what they're doing is for long-term viability. Just think about the NFL for a second. The NFL changed its rules and continues to change and adopt their rules. And every year they change the rules, people complain. At the beginning of this year, they changed the rules about hitting the quarterback. There's a lot more personal fouls. They've tried to change the rules about leading with your head into tackles and protecting players on the field. And there's a big uproar and people say, well, this isn't football. This isn't what I grew up with. And they're upset about it. But the NFL makes these changes anyways. Why? Because they understand that they're playing an infinite game. They understand that, yes, in the short term, some people are going to be upset. And we might lose some fans in the short term. But they understand if they don't make those changes, if they don't change the rules of the game, if they don't take some of the violence out of it, that they could lose the league entirely because of lawsuits, because of people getting so injured that no one wants to play. They are playing the infinite game. They are being proactive in making those long-term moves, jeopardizing some fans in the short term. And so when we play a game or when we're analyzing a situation, we have to ask a couple of questions. We have to ask, are we playing a zero-sum game or a non-zero-sum game? After we decide the answer to that question, we then need to ask ourselves, are we playing a finite game or an infinite game? Because the strategies that we take in a finite game and the strategies that we take in an infinite game are completely different. 
finally we need to ask ourselves one more question about the type of game that we're playing. And that is, are we playing a sequential game or are we playing a simultaneous game? And these are pretty easily differentiated. A simultaneous game is a game in which people or the players are making decisions at the same time without knowing what the opponent's decision is. A sequential game is a game in which one player makes a decision, then after that player makes a decision, the other player makes a decision knowing what the first player did. Today, what I want to focus on are sequential games, their application within sport, and strategies that we can take to help make sure that we're winning those games. So the example that we've already done, the pick a number game, is a prime example of a sequential game. There are two of us playing this game. We are the player, so we have the first element of a game that we need. Each of us makes moves one after the other. So the first move that was made in our game was that I got to pick a number, any number between 1 and 100. Now, after I picked the number, it was then your turn to make the move. The move that you made was to guess that my number was 50. So you made your move. I then got to make my move by telling you whether the number was higher or lower. And based off knowing that my number was lower, you then got to make another move. And we continued this pattern until we ended with your fifth guess being the number 49. While that might be a really basic example of a sequential game, it still lets you see those defining characteristics coming to play. So now that we have an understanding for the basic terminology and we know what a sequential game is, I want to move to talking about examples that we see of sequential games in the world of sports. And maybe even more importantly, I want to talk about strategies that we can take to try to assure that if we were playing the game, we would come out victorious. And the most basic strategy I want you to keep in mind for all of these examples is one that's coined in Dexit and Nailbuff's book, The Art of Strategy. It's talked about in James Miller's Game Theory at Work. Every book that I've ever come across has a version of this, and that is look forward and reason backwards. Try to forecast what the end of the game looks like. And if we can do that, if we can look to the end, then we can reason backwards. We can do something called reverse induction. If we know what our opponent will do, then I can make a more informed decision to try to dictate or cause my opponent to pick a certain option. So to show you exactly what I'm talking about, let's look at one of the most controversial things that happened in the NFL this year, and that is the LeVon Bell contract holdout. For those of you who don't follow the NFL or didn't follow this specific situation, let me provide a little bit of background. This past offseason, the Pittsburgh Steelers assigned LeVon Bell something called the franchise tag. The franchise tag is a designation that teams in the NFL can place on one player per offseason. It allows them to make sure that that player stays on their team. So LeVon Bell's contract ran out two years ago. The Steelers, not wanting to lose him because he's such a great running back, assigned him the franchise tag. And that guarantees Bell one of two things. Either he gets a raise from his current contract if he's one of the top five players in the league already. Or if he's not one of the top five players, he gets a guaranteed average of the five highest players salary in the league. Now, in doing this two years ago, the Steelers signed him to a one-year deal under that franchise tag. They did it again this past offseason. The downfall to the franchise tag for the player is it inhibits their ability to enter into free agency and negotiate contracts with everyone else. And the ability to negotiate contracts with multiple people at once can actually drive up the amount of money that a player can get because they have more options. But by getting that franchise tag, the Steelers removed Bell's ability to do that. And the franchise tag would have given Bell a salary of roughly $15 million if he had played in 2018. But LeVon Bell did not want only a one-year contract, which the franchise tag is. He wanted a much longer-term deal. And so he told the Steelers that he would not play under the franchise 
franchise tag distinction and that the only way that he was going to play is if they entered into that long-term contract with them. The problem for the Steelers was that Bell wanted a contract or was asking for a contract of around $17 million a year. Now, that is a lot of money for any player, but it's especially a lot of money for a running back. When you look at the value that other running backs are getting, most running backs are only receiving a contract of six to seven million dollars, and those are even for the top end running backs. The position in general just doesn't get paid that much. And so the Steelers were in a situation where they did not want to pay Bell $17 million a year over the course of multiple years. And Bell was in a situation where he wanted to try to maximize the amount of money that he could make this year and going forward. So we were in a stalemate. The Steelers had made their move in the sequential game, offering him $15 million a year. Since we're playing a sequential game, that means the next move was on Bell. And Bell opted not to sign what's called the franchise tender, the contract that would have made him a Steeler for the 2018 season. The move goes back on to the Steelers then, and the Steelers have two choices. They could choose to offer him a long-term contract in which he was getting about what he was looking for, about that $17 million a year, or they could choose to do nothing and say, either you take the $15 million contract or you don't play. And LeVon Bell said, I will not play under the franchise tag. And he threatened to hold out at the beginning of the season. And so we're at a stalemate at this point. We're in a sequential game. Both sides have stated their positions. Both sides have made multiple moves. And now it's on Bell as the season starts. He can either sign or he cannot get paid anything for the entire year. And he threatens to hold out. He says, I will not sign that contract. Now, this highlights a key strategy in sequential games and in games in general, and that is to make a threat. The key here is that it has to be a believable threat because as we will oftentimes see in game theory, threats do not work because the outcome of a threat is actually harmful to yourself. So LeVon Bell threatening to hold out is actually harmful to himself. He's turning down $15 million. And most of the time, these players end up signing after a little bit of a holdout because that threat isn't credible. So he makes a threat. He says, I will not play. I refuse to come. And in making that threat, he was hoping to drive them into action. But let's take a step back here because I said it has to be believable. It has to be a credible threat. If threats oftentimes don't work because it is harmful to the person making the threat, how can we go about making sure that the threat is seen as credible and believable? Well, we do this through two means. One is building trust with the people that we're playing with, or what I refer to as our exchange partners, and making them believe that we're an honest person. So how do we go about building trust? Well, trust is built through time, through what we call an exchange process, where I say I'm going to do something and then I follow through. And just doing it once isn't going to build trust. I need to do it time after time after time at a time. And as I do that, as I come through on my promises and I'm a man of my word time after time, it makes me appear to be an honest person. And by coming across as honest, now when I make a threat, now when I say that I'm going to do something, Now that carries some weight. Now people will actually believe me. And the problem is in the NFL, so oftentimes players threaten to hold out and then they end up coming back that it's not really seen as that credible of a threat. Even with LeVon Bell, even if they believe that he was going to hold out, that threat still might not work. But making a threat is a good option. Let me give you an example of why most NFL players' threats to hold out are seen as hollow threats. Because we can actually apply this into a real world. Say at your job, you want to get a raise. Well, the process of asking and trying to obtain a raise is game theory. It is a sequential game where I go in, I ask my boss for a certain number. Based off of that move that I make, he is going to make a move or she is going to make a move in which she might offer me less money or say no or say yes. And then after she makes that move, I have an option. Can I accept their counteroffer? Do I do something else? Well, 
in this game, if I were to go into my boss's office and say, I want a thousand dollar raise a year or else I quit, that would be me trying to use the strategy of making threats. How do I make that threat seem believable? Well, if I've built trust and established myself as an honest person within this company, the likelihood of them believing that I'm going to quit if I don't get the raise is higher, but it's still not exact. However, if I were to go in to my boss's office and say, I want $1,000 a raise a year or else I'm leaving because company Z has offered me a higher salary, now not only am I making a threat, but now I'm showing them and providing proof that I have another potential player in the game. I'm forcing their hand a bit by telling them that someone else has offered me money. Now, they have to believe that that is true in order for the threat to work. I could be lying. I could go in and say that Company Z offered me a a certain amount of money, and it's not true. And if that's the case, and they call my bluff and say, we're not giving you a raise, now I'm in a really tough position. But if it is true that I do have that company out there, that's Company Z, that's offering me more money, that strengthens my hand. If we go back to the LeVon Bell situation and what happens so often in the NFL where these players threaten to hold out, they have no other option. They're making a threat to try to get their way, but they don't have the option of going and playing for someone else. They don't have the option of that company Z guaranteeing them more money. And so they're saying it, and even if they trust that they'll hang out, more often than not, the teams choose to just say no We are not going to give in to your demands because they know that there's no other options or that there's no one else playing the game. So making threats can be something that can be beneficial. In the LeVon Bell situation, he made a threat to hold out, and he actually stayed true to his word to hold out, but the Steelers would not give in because they recognize that in the future, that salary might be detrimental to them. And that in the short term, yes, they might take a hit, but it was more likely that Bell would give in because he had no other options. The question you're probably asking yourself now is, besides having other options out there, how do I make a threat seem credible to try to get the strategic advantage in these sequential games? And the first one is something that we call burning the boats. Another way to think about this is eliminating all other options. And a number of books describe this in different ways, but I want you to think about this in terms of a medieval battle where you're on one side and I'm on the other. Now, in this battle... I'm in my castle, and that castle on three sides is surrounded by land, and on the other side, it is surrounded by water. I'm in there, and you have me completely surrounded. Now, in this game, your goal, the outcome that you are striving for, is to take the castle by losing the least amount of men and soldiers possible. My goal, or the outcome that I'm looking for, is the exact opposite. I want to keep the castle and lose as few of my soldiers as possible. But we're, st- we're locked in a stalemate because neither of us want to fight because if we fight, that means that we'll both lose some of our men. And it is a zero-sum game because at the end of the game, one person's going to have the castle and the other person's not. Now, you refuse to fight me. You just barricade me in because you think, well, eventually, if I just barricade them on three sides, I'm going to force them to leave the castle in their boats. They're going to have to get away at some point because they're going to have to go out and get food from somewhere because we're, we're cutting off all their supply lines. And so I make a threat to you and I say, we will never leave this castle. I don't care what you do. But you're not going to believe that threat because you know eventually I still have a way to get out. I still have the boats on the backside in the water and I can escape and I'm going to have to go and do that because if I don't, I'm going to start losing people to starvation. So that threat of me never leaving doesn't have any solace to you. It doesn't mean anything to you. Well, how can I increase the likelihood that you're going to believe my threat? I can burn the boats. I can go and light all of my boats on fire. So I eliminate my ability to leave. I'm taking options away from me. 
And if I'm crazy enough to burn the boats and I say, we will not leave this castle, now you are going to believe that threat. You're going to see my threat as being credible because I have no other option. And you're now going to be forced into making a move, into either attacking or changing your strategy. How do we equate this to sport? Well, we can eliminate options in sport multiple ways, but I always think of the Tom Brady, Jimmy Garoppolo situation that unfolded in New England, where the Patriots had a great backup quarterback waiting to take over for Tom Brady. And he just kept waiting there for two years, three years, when people started to talk, well, once Tom Brady retires, this will be the next great quarterback. We saw a similar situation happen up in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers and Brett Favre, where we had Aaron Rodgers sitting there waiting to take over. But the Patriots did something a little bit different. Instead of just keeping Garoppolo around as that lifeboat that we could take to escape the castle, they burned the boats and they traded him away. They say, we're getting rid of you. Our only option now is Tom Brady and nothing else. And by doing that, they signaled to the rest of the league that Tom Brady is still our quarterback. He is still good enough to win. And how does that benefit the Patriots? It lets all the players that are free agents out there know this is our guy. It lets all the players on the team know this is our starting quarterback. It deals and takes away any possibility of players on the team or people in the league or the media talking about Tom Brady's successor. It unifies the team in that manner because we don't have to deal with that dissension. Whereas, In Green Bay, where they don't trade away the backup quarterback, every year there's conversation. Is this the year Aaron Rodgers takes over? Is this the year that he takes over? So having that backup quarterback sitting there being really good actually causes problems. So trading him away helps the situation. It helps put you in the upper hand in the strategic thinking. It's burning the boats and applying that ideology of eliminating options into the world of sports now there are ways outside of just making threats to try to win these sequential games and the first one's a very easy straightforward one and that's just establish deadlines within the game that you're playing so if we go back to that very simple pick a number game that we started off with if i said you have five seconds to make a decision after i say go That puts you under a lot of pressure that eliminates your ability to go and forecast into the game and work yourself backwards. It puts pressure on you and oftentimes it forces you into making a decision that is the wrong decision. And we can do this in these sequential games by putting deadlines on our actions. If we go all the way back to the LeVon Bell situation, within that negotiation, there are multiple deadlines that are out there. There's deadlines that he has to report to the team or else he's going to have to start paying a fine. There's deadlines that when she can sign the contract at all or he has to sit out the entire season. And the idea of those deadlines is as they approach, they force you into action. Many times in those scenarios, they can force you into making the wrong decision. Along similar lines and putting on deadlines, we can also cut off communication. We can make an offer to someone within a contract negotiation like LeVon Bell, and then we can just leave. And we cannot allow that individual to communicate with me. And what that does is it says, this is my only offer. This is the final offer that you're getting. You don't have any other choice. And it's not like they can either even fight that if I cut off communication because they have absolutely no way of getting back in contact with me. Today's world, cutting off communication is a little bit harder. But what we oftentimes do is instead of cutting off communication fully, is we cut off communication with the the principal individual by assigning responsibility or giving someone else the ability to speak for us. Whether it's in a contract negotiation in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Soccer or Major League Baseball in which we have our agent do the negotiation for us and let them make those decisions because the idea behind giving someone else the ability to speak for us is that we allow those individuals who have a different outcome that they're trying to get 
have a say. So the other thing that it does is it allows the removal of emotion from the conversation. Oftentimes in my playing these games, it's hard for me to remove the emotion that I have towards the other person that's playing. And if I think emotionally, I'm oftentimes not acting in a logical manner. By removing myself from that situation, assigning someone else to speak on my behalf and communicate on my behalf, that individual hopefully is bringing much less emotion into the game. And by bringing less emotion in, they're much more likely to think in a logical manner and get the outcome that both I want and the outcome that's most beneficial to them. Now, for this next strategy, we're going to continue going on this idea of contract negotiation because it's a great example of sequential games in sport. But for this one, I want to change the conversation just a little bit because the strategy is different. The strategy is known as swallowing a poison pill. And so I want to take into consideration the NBA and how some of their contracts work. The NBA has something they call the Gilbert Arena provision as part of their collective bargaining agreement. And what that provision allows for is it allows allows for players who are what we call early bird players. Now, an early bird player is an individual who gets drafted to their team who goes up for a contract extension at the end of their first contract. The end of that first contract, you are not a free agent, but rather a restricted free agent, which means you can negotiate with any team in the league and you can agree to a contract with any team in the league. But... Your current team has the right to match whatever contract is offered to you. And if your current team chooses to match the contract, then you have to stay with them. You don't have the option. With this Gilbert Arena provision, it is something that allows you to insert what's called a poison pill into a contract that you negotiate with someone else's early bird eligible player. And it goes like this. Let's say I am the Boston Celtics and I'm trying to negotiate a contract with your star young player who is an early bird restricted free agent. I could offer him $5 million a year over the course of three years. And if that's all I'm offering him, you're probably going to choose to match. So I have to think strategically. I have to look to the end of the game and say, what would make you as a player in this game not want to match the offer that I am making? One way that I can make you not want to match that contract is to make it so large that it is infeasible for you to match it. But that's tough for me to do because if I offer a player that I think is worth $5 million, $20 million, that hurts my team in the long run, right? It doesn't allow me to go out and sign other players as well. So instead, what I oftentimes choose to do is I insert into this contract a massive raise in the third year. So the first year, he might get $5 million. The second year, he might get $5 million. But the third year, I might pay him $20 million. In, in doing that, I'm inserting this poison pill into the contract that makes it so if you were to sign that player, it's going to handcuff you in that third year. It's going to make it so hard for you to be competitive in the third year that actually helps me that year. But the benefit to this is that if the player does choose to sign with me, at least I have them for those first two years at that low cost. And I can build my team around that and hopefully be a contender. A great example of this when it actually happened was a player for the Miami Heat named Tyler Johnson. He was an early bird restricted free agent in 2016. He actually signed an offer sheet with the Brooklyn Nets. And they inserted one of these poison pills. In the first year of his contract, he was going to make $5.88 million. And about the same in his second year. However, in the third year... The Nets were going to pay him $19.45 million. He was going to see a $14 million increase in salary. The Nets did this to try to force Miami to not match, to not sign the player. Miami signed him anyways. So the Nets end up losing, but in the long run, it helps the Nets. Because now, going into his third year next year... Tyler Johnson is going to be paid almost $20 million. It really hurts Miami's ability to get a free agent this coming offseason, which actually helps the Nets because it's one less team that they have to compete with who has salary cap available to sign a top free agent. 
And so these poison pills can be inserted to try to force action. Another way that we see this in, in the NBA is by individual players inserting poison pills into their own contracts through what we call trade kickers. The two most maybe famous examples of this in recent years are Carmelo Anthony two years ago when he was traded from the New York Knicks to Oklahoma City had something called a trade kicker in his contract that said, if the Knicks trade you, you get an extra X amount of money. And in the present day, John Wall has the exact same trade kicker. If he gets traded from Washington, he gets a 50 percent increase in his salary now that makes it so it's almost impossible to trade him which is exactly what he wanted because in the nba the ability for a player to get a no trade clause which is a clause in the contract that says a team cannot reassign your contract to another team is almost impossible every once in a while you hear a player like kevin garnett or kobe bryant get a no trade clause but it's not feasible for most players What is feasible is for me to negotiate this trade kicker in, this poison pill that makes it so no other team would want to trade for me because they'd have to pay me an exorbitant amount of money. The benefit to the player is that the player gets more say to where they go and they potentially get more money if they are traded. The benefit to the team is a lot less. Why would a team like the Washington Wizards, want to give or guarantee John Wall that trade kicker? Well, because if they don't guarantee it to him, he might not actually want to play for them. The problem is, is if he's having a down year, if he's not playing well, it makes it almost impossible for them to get rid of John Wall and start rebuilding their team. And so swallowing a poison pill or setting a contract up in a way that actually makes it not enticing for other companies to sign your talent is a very common strategy to try to take in order to win a sequential game. So that brings us to the final scenario I want to talk about in sequential games and the strategy that we can take to win those. And the scenario is this. Imagine you're starting a new professional basketball league that you want to compete with the NBA. Now, the NBA knows that you are going to start this league. There's been rumors about it, and they want to deter you from entering into the marketplace. They want to try to make it so that you don't enter because they're worried that if you start this league and it begins to flourish, that you could actually take some of their players, you could take some of their fans, and you could actually decrease their viability long term. So what do you think the NBA is going to do to try to keep you from entering into the marketplace and taking some of their market share? Well, they're probably going to do a combination of two strategies that we already talked about. And that combination is going to be something that deals with swallowing a poison pill and making threats. So they're probably going to begin with threatening you and threatening to slash their prices because they know as a league what it costs to operate. And they've been around for so long that they have so much money that they've made that they can actually take a hit for a little while and not make any money. But if they cut their costs so much that it makes it so you can't make any money, then all of a sudden it makes it so it might not be feasible for you to enter the marketplace. They're taking a poison pill. They're making it so they are actually going to hurt some, but The idea is by threatening that, hopefully it will keep you from entering the marketplace because you're so worried about also hurting yourself. And in this case, hurting yourself is having the league not be successful and having to declare bankruptcy. And oftentimes, this is exactly what we see corporations do, especially massive corporations. Think about examples like Walmart. If you have another competitor come onto the marketplace that wants to be this megastore that sells all these different items and it starts to slowly gain steam, what does Walmart do or what do they have the ability to do? They can slash their prices for a short time. They can cut their prices so low that they're not making much money. The problem is in order for you to be competitive and stay competitive with getting those consumers to come to your store, you also have to slash your prices. And if you don't slash your prices, the competitor is just going to go to that other store. They're going to go to Walmart because they can get the same products for less. But when you slash your prices, if you're just a small store, a small mom and pop shop, 
By slashing your prices, you actually hurt your ability to operate because you might not be making enough revenue to keep the doors open. Whereas Walmart makes so much money that them cutting their prices to that point, even for an extended period of time, is not going to force them to shut. In fact, it's going to force you to shut. And then what can they do? They can hike the prices back up. And so the NBA would do the exact same thing to you. They would try to cut their prices so much that it makes it impossible for you to be successful because they would be the cheaper option out there. They need the money less to stay in business for a short term than you do. And so they put these entry deterrents in. They're probably first going to make a threat about that to you and call you up and say, this is what we're going to do if you choose to enter the marketplace. You might not believe them. You might not see that threat as credible because you think that logically they wouldn't hurt themselves, but... It is a seemingly credible threat because we have seen examples of companies do that, of setting these really low suicide prices just to make it so you can't go into business. And that's one of the reasons that it's so hard for new professional leagues to form. In fact, we see a new professional football league start up this spring. And we've had multiple professional football leagues try to form during the spring or compete with the NFL problem is the NFL has the ability to set those suicide prices. The other thing that the NBA can do and that the NFL does do is they can enter into contractual agreements with key people that you need and they can get those individuals to sign over exclusivity, meaning that you are the only football company or baseball company that they can work with. This is especially important when we talk about professional sports and TV right deals. So if the NFL or the NBA really wanted to make it hard for you to enter into their marketplace within this sequential game that we're talking about, the strategy that they could take would be to sign CBS, NBC, ESPN, Fox to exclusive deals that say that the only professional baseball, basketball, football, whatever, the only professional sport that they can show is yours. And by doing that, that means once this new football league starts up, if the NFL were to have these exclusive contracts, that once this new league starts up, they cannot generate money through television revenue, which by the way, is the number one way that these professional sport leagues are generating revenue. So by signing these exclusive contracts, I'm actually deterring entry. I'm not stopping it completely because now with media, there's so many ways to get out there. There's so many other forms like the internet, through YouTube, through Amazon. There's so many ways to get your product dispersed, but it makes it much harder for those companies. And just by applying these principles of game theory and knowing this, I can plan ahead. It's not that the NBA currently has a threat to them, but by looking forward and seeing how other individuals or other organizations might form to challenge, I can set things in place to make it so if it were to happen, I'm in a position where I can make sure that I win that game. Well, we haven't come close to hitting on all the strategies that can be taken to help win sequential games. What I hope is that this podcast has provided a little bit of insight into different strategic situations that professional sport organizations and athletes find themselves in and how game theory applies to them. I also hope that you can take those strategies that we've talked about in those different situations and apply them maybe to your own life or think about how they might apply to other sports settings. So that way, when you come across a sports story on ESPN or in the paper, you can analyze it and think about what are all the components that are going into it. Because so often, it's not just what appears on the surface, like the LeVon Bell situation. It seems pretty simple. He wants more money. He's holding out. They don't want to give him more money. And that's it. But when we start to analyze it and look at it through this situation or through the prism of game theory, we can see that there are a number of steps that are taken or a number of threats that are being made or a number of positions that are being established to try to assure that each side has the upper hand within the negotiation. So that way they're trying to win the game that they're playing. Going forward later this year, we'll be talking more about game theory. We'll do podcasts where we talk not just about sequential games, which was the focus here, but also on simultaneous games. 
If you like this podcast and want to learn more about game theory or the application of other things into the sporting world, please feel free to follow us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. We love to hear from our fans. Give us a like on iTunes as well and subscribe so that way you can be the first to listen to new and upcoming episodes. Until then, though, thank you for listening to this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.